Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, September 14th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 to 28. While Ezekiel is by the Kabar Canal in the land of the Chaldeans, the hand of the Lord is upon the prophet to give him a revelation of the glory of the Lord. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Kyle Meetsner. Pastor Meetsner serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Anchorage, Alaska. Pastor Meetsner, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, great. Good to be here. As we get started this morning, Pastor Meetsner, let's talk a little bit of context. We introduced the book as a whole yesterday, set that larger stage. As we prepare to look at the rest of the first chapter today, this opening vision that Ezekiel has, what kind of historical context, other items of importance do we need to know as we read what I think, if I can say this, is a rather strange text, as we'll see. It is very strange, and there's really kind of nothing else like it, uh, maybe other than like the book of Revelation, uh, but it is um, it is remarkable. And yeah, so there's a couple things we need to know about Ezekiel right off the bat uh ezekiel he is he he is the he is a prophet writing from exile so jeremiah and isaiah they write um they're not exiled yet they're kind of warning about these things but ezekiel straddles these things um so he is writing actually from a foreign land and that is unique to him um and it kind of answers a lot of um well, it, it, it raises a lot of questions about things like this initial revelation uh, of the Lord God to him. But uh, so you might be asking, well, how on earth did Ezekiel get into exile in the first place? And what does that mean? So um, just briefly, we we have uh, records from the scriptures and also there are really interesting there is extensive extra biblical evidence uh, for the exile I, I don't know if you were like this but i grew up i feel like i grew up in a time where people still thought the israelites might not have existed mm-hmm. and like the kingdoms of israel and judah were probably just a fairy tale in the scriptures um, because we can't trust the scriptures of course but then like, there's a crazy thing that happens. All these archaeologists are just digging in the sands out there in, in Israel and in the Middle East, and and they find all these old records that, that actually turn out to um, corroborate the, the scriptural witness. So I, I think it's a good thing for us to take the Bible as history. Kind of crazy, right? Um but there it is. They, we have all these records. Um, when the library at Nineveh was burned, it actually kind of preserved the the records there because they're written on these clay tablets. There's all these. They're kind of crazy. It's all um, 
they're not writing down stories. It's all accounting records of rations and stuff like this. Uh, but we have all these records about these exiles being there. So how they get there? Uh, Israel, so the kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, the, the capital city there, is kind of caught in between these gigantic nations that are uh, always at war. So Egypt in the south and then Assyria in the north. And, and Judah, Jerusalem, is there at the crossroads. And they kind of get beaten back and forth by these other big bad guys. And, and, and they never really end up being on the right side of those things. Because, by the way, they're not supposed to be on the side of any of the big bad guys. They're supposed to rely on the Lord uh, for, for protection. But this is the whole story of, of, of Israel. He takes them out of slavery, out of nothing, liberates them from their captive, the, the people holding them captive, brings them into the wilderness, uh, feeds them for 40 years, brings them into a land that was not theirs, and then allows them to conquer the whole thing. Um, and so when we, our, our Lutheran school here in Anchorage, uh, they, they chose Joshua 1.9 as the, uh, theme verse for this year and uh, it says be strong and courageous in the Lord and Joshua gives these instructions that we're not going to turn from the right or the left we're going to find our strength in the Lord and as we know that is not what they were always doing when they do it it works out great they conquer their enemies the walls of Jericho fall down but when you're making alliances with all of these big, bad, godless pagans out there, well, guess what? It's not going to work out very well. So uh, Jerusalem is it ends up getting uh, smashed to pieces because of their idolatry. Um, so in, in, in this, there's a couple of exiles that happen here. So Nebuchadnezzar comes along. And uh, exiles, I believe there's about there's three different phases of this. Uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel is part of the priestly class, I guess we'd say, uh, the ruling class. And so Ezekiel gets sent to Babylon in 597. Um, and then in 586, they come back and they get more of them. Uh, and they leave basically only the poorest people in the land and completely level the city of Jerusalem. And uh, historical records kind of show that there were about 75,000 people living in Jerusalem at the time. And somewhere around 25,000, I believe, were exiled. So it's a pretty big city, and they take a lot of people out of there. And, and, I mean, and that's how you conquer people. Eventually, Babylon falls to Persia, and then King Cyrus in 539 allows their return. He kind of reverses a lot of the things that Nebuchadnezzar had had in place. Um, and most of the people don't return, but they all longed for it. And they, they give the children names that, that show, that remind them uh, that they are always wanting to go back to Jerusalem. 
Um, and now we read about this in Second Chronicles. At the end of Second Chronicles, it tells us this really interesting thing. I'll just read this. It's two verses. Second Chronicles 36, 20 to 21. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. They became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And it is during that time when the land is enjoying its Sabbath that Ezekiel uh, comes along and receives these visions and, and, and prophesies to the people of God who are in exile. So the people of God are in exile, part of them at this point, not all of them. Again, we're in the 598, 597 BC range where Babylon has established itself as the world power and Ezekiel has gone away in that one of the first exiles, not the ultimate one in 586, 587 BC. He's there in that foreign land prophesying to the people of God there in exile, unlike Jeremiah, who's still prophesying back in Judah at the time. And he's, it says in verse three, just prior to our text, that he's by the Kabar Canal, and that's where the hand of the Lord is upon him. Anything particular on that location, the Kabar Canal in the land of the Chaldeans that we should know before we jump into this text? So, yeah, the, the Kabar Canal is, it is a huge feat of engineering. And it is, uh, it's a canal for irrigation and also transportation. And kind of what it looks to us is that the exiles had their own kind of city there along the Kabar Canal um, called either uh, Tel Aviv or Nippur. Um, but uh, the ancient historian, really the father of history, uh, study of history, um, Herodotus actually writes about this in, in his histories, and it was it was a way that you could um, assault Babylon or the Assyrians. Uh, you could go and you could actually like cut it off and and um, destroy them and like invade from there. So yeah, it was a really important river. I mean, it's like whenever I hear about this, the the Kabar Canal, I always imagine some small canal or something but it, this is a big deal and yeah it really is a kind of a feat of engineering it is i believe it's all silted up uh right now they didn't maintain it for the last uh 2500 years or whatever so uh you you can't use it anymore but yeah it was a really big deal all right so it's a significant location where ezekiel is and this is where the hand of the lord is upon him and we're going to see this inaugural vision of ezekiel that's going to lead into his call which takes place in in chapter two and following so again we're, we're going to read a text and i'm just going to read it all through pastor meetsner so that we can just listen to it as you said there's really nothing else like it in scripture other than what we hear in the book of revelation and there's going to be some similarities that maybe we can draw out as we read but but let's just listen to the word of the lord from ezekiel chapter one beginning at verse four as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. 
They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of a barrel, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, and their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings." And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. That's our text for today. That's Ezekiel 1, verses 4 to 28. Pastor Mesa, there's so much here that we can talk about, so many details, but perhaps the place to start is just overall, I mean, the, you know, this, this vision, as we were saying, is, is strange. It's, it's hard for me personally to picture it fully in my mind. I get the glimpses and the individual pieces, but to put it all together in my own mind is a real challenge for me. In terms of this vision as a whole, and, and like, 
what's going on? What's the what's the main point that we should be getting out of this chapter from Ezekiel? Before we start digging into details, what's what's the main point of this? Well, you know, we could take the Ezekiel option and uh, fall on our face, and that would be uh, very appropriate, I think, because uh, yeah, it's like what, what's Ezekiel's response? I am on my face. This is clearly something. Uh, this is this is holiness, and he knows that this is the glory of the Lord. This is the glory of Yahweh. So, um, the big thing here, and this is why it's so important to know that Ezekiel is an exile. Um, he's an exiled priest, right? So Ezekiel one one tells us in the thirtieth year. What we think is that that's Ezekiel's 30th year, all right? Um, we find out in Leviticus that the priests started duty in the temple when they were 30 years old. So Ezekiel, well, I mean, the problem of serving in the temple when you're 30 years old is that there's only one place you can do that, and it's Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And you got kicked out. And the place where you were supposed to be serving the Lord is going to be destroyed, too. So you have this young priest who should be entering the service of the Lord in the temple. And the big question is, is that still something that can happen? Mm-hmm. And so the, I mean, the, the big thing here is that the Lord's presence is not confined to the temple. And when you are in exile, the Lord does not abandon you. Um, he may come to us in unexpected means such as this, but he does not abandon Ezekiel. He does not abandon his people. Okay. Instead, he, he searches them out, and, <laughs> and at the end, he's on his face. All right, so the, the I like that. The Ezekiel response... Just fall on your face. This is the Lord in whose presence you are. What's the appropriate response for a sinner? You fall on your face. I mean, that's that's the appropriate response of worship before the Lord. It's it's not all that different from, say, what happens with Isaiah in his call scene when he gets caught up into the throne room of God and and his lips need to be you know made holy by that burning coal. Not all that different from, say, the apostle Peter when Jesus has that miraculous catch of fish and he says, depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. So Ezekiel falls on his face because he realizes that the Lord is now there. He is, Ezekiel is in the presence of the Lord. And and what's the important part of that? Well, as you said, they're in exile. Ezekiel's a priest. What now? What does this mean? The Lord is still going to be with them. He's not abandoned them in the exile. And he's going to bring his word to his people now in exile. And, and I mean, all of this, I think, as we see, of course, it's not all here just in chapter one, but it's setting the stage for so much that's going to come in the book of Ezekiel and, and his prophetic ministry of preaching to these exiles who are there in Babylon. So that's very helpful, Pastor Meissner, just to have that in our minds so that we don't lose sight of the big picture of what's going on, even as we try to, to picture this in our minds and, and try to understand what some of these details might be teaching us, that big picture that even in exile, the Lord is going to be present among his people. His presence is not limited to that building in Jerusalem, and he is going to do something for his people there in exile. That's the that's the big picture. We want to hold on to that as we prepare to talk about these details. So 
with that, and, and maybe let's let's I don't know. This is so there's so much here. Let's start with the four living creatures. Uh, start start talking about the four living creatures. We got about seven minutes on this side of the break. I imagine we're going to be talking about this for a little while. So help us get started about these four living creatures. Yeah, great. So um, so we can kind of break this vision up into three parts. There's the the four living creatures. There's the the wheels, and then there's um, above the, these uh, living creatures in the wheels. Now, by the way, yeah, and you're saying like it's hard to picture this, and I, I don't know if you've done like much looking on the internet for this, but like I have not found any satisfactory uh, Christian art about this particular topic. It all it all falls short. Um, you know, there's so many different depictions of uh, I don't know, like the resurrection or the baptism of Christ and uh or or noah you know but but this one it's you just can't do it like we cannot depict this um with our own hands and i I think that's like it's good to just kind of leave it here too because my my mind actually um paints this picture for me and it's it's wild isn't it so um i guess Right off the bat, um, we want to. If we look at, let's see, verse four, um, there is a fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. This is like a really interesting word here for the, the gleaming metal thing. I don't know if that caught your attention at all, but I, I just I kind of wonder how much gleaming metal there was back then. Um, I imagine the world being very dusty at that point, but um, this this word in Hebrew it's it's it only happens three times and it's and it's in this chapter of Ezekiel. Um, it's kashmal. I don't know if you remember that. They didn't really teach us that word in, in seminary because it only happens. I don't. Three I don't think times. that one was on the Hebrew quiz I I took. No, but it it means uh, this br- brilliant amalgam of gold and silver some people translate it as amber um but th- i thought this was really cool the septuagint the greek translation of the old testament uses the word electron hmm. how about that it's i mean there's so many things in the scriptures that again kind of are proven to be true over the years so you have this thing that looks like a, a lightning cloud and then there's there's in the middle of it is these electrons. I love it. It's like, oh well, that's what lightning actually is. Um, but anyways, you know, one of the things I love about this chapter too is that we're never told exactly what all this stuff means. All we're told is that this is what he saw. There's no complicated interpretation of it. He just sees it. And, and that that tells me that this is actually a true thing. Because he's not like, he's not like interpreting it as a dream or something like that. He's not saying, now this represents that and this represents that. Um, this is just what he sees. And, and again, this is also what, um, what the Apostle John sees during the Revelation, which by the way, he's also writing 
the revelation, receiving that great revelation of God in exile. Hmm. So these things are, they're meant to be for our comfort, as horrifying as they may be, uh, because they are. They're the weirdest thing. So throughout history, though, um, the church has interpreted these four living creatures in a lot of different ways. Uh, But essentially, well, um, you would would have some people telling us that Ezekiel is adopting or trying to appropriate Babylonian religion, which often had these sort of uh, winged sphinx-like creatures. It's also of note, I think, that um, later on in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 10, he actually says, these are the cherubim. Uh, He doesn't. He doesn't like play around with that. He doesn't say it here, but in Ezekiel 10, when they show up again, he says, these are the cherubim. Also, maybe interesting, they sort of, they sort of drop out of the book too. Um, The content of the prophecy takes over from the um, kind of over the top imagery. Although we'll see that Ezekiel uh, does all sorts of interesting things too, that are almost as bizarre as this vision um, but yeah these are uh, and i guess like i don't i don't know if this is scandalous or not but um people will say that these four creatures are actually these babylonian pagan deities so when you would go into babylon um, and I, i've seen one of these myself in the uh, oriental institute in chicago which is a wonderful museum for anyone in the midwest it's worth i would say at least a six-hour drive totally cool and it's free um but there's they have one of these things called a llama sioux it's this gigantic stone carving of like it's got a man's head on basically like a lion's body and and people will say that Ezekiel is kind of adopting these things. And but here's the thing is that Ezekiel says that these things are living creatures. Yeah. So the Babylonians have lots of dead creatures, stone creatures. But we know that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And the stone idols won't help at all. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of this thing, uh, these the four living creatures, it's not about the four living creatures. It's actually about the one that they're carrying, about the one who sits between the cherubim. Mm. Now, where do we know that from? Again, is this is what Ezekiel has been training his whole entire life for, is to one day go into the Holy of Holies and come before the glory of the Lord huh. in the temple, who is enthroned upon the cherubim, upon the, the, the Ark of the Covenant there. And again, it's like if you spend your whole entire life thinking that like your job is to go into the temple and to meet the glory of the Lord there, and then all of a sudden you see the cherubim out here by the Chibar Canal, like things are changing, and this is a big deal. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is, yeah, this is a big deal that what you're saying here, we're, we're seeing, I mean, Ezekiel is really standing on at a point of history where 
it's i mean we're getting ready i think just to go there we're getting ready for the incarnation with all of this that that the presence of god is is not going to be just located there in a building in jerusalem the presence of god is coming to ezekiel in, in exile and ultimately the presence of god is going to come in the person jesus christ in our flesh we'll talk more about that on the other side of the break and the rest of ezekiel one you're listening to sharper iron here on kfuo talking to pastor kyle meetsner this morning we'll be right back please stick around Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, September 14th. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 28 with Pastor Kyle Meetsner of Zion Lutheran Church in Anchorage, Alaska. Pastor Meetsner, prior to the break, we were talking about these four living creatures, and you mentioned that in the history of the church, sometimes these four living creatures are understood to be somehow related to the four gospels, even to the point where each of the gospel writers gets one of these living creatures, one of their the faces assigned to him. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I, in my uh, study here at uh, Zion in Anchorage, I have a, a an icon on the wall, um, Christ in majesty. And so Jesus is in the middle, and then on the four corners, uh, there's a man, an eagle, an ox, and a lion. And so the church, and this is very early, Irenaeus is the first person to come up with this interpretation. And it's, it's really interesting because on the one hand, we're asking, what do these four figures mean? And then on the other hand, people are asking, why are there four Gospels? And it doesn't take them very long to say, like, oh, well, there's clearly four Gospels because there's four living creatures. And what's sort of interesting to me, too, is that Irenaeus comes along and he assigns to each Gospel one of these living creatures. He says Matthew is the man, John is the lion, Luke is the calf, and the Mark is Mark is the eagle. And uh, lots of people... Uh, come along and, and like assign them differently. Uh, St. Augustine in the uh, 5th century says, well, no, Mark is the man, Matthew's the lion, Luke's the calf, and John's the eagle. So um, whatever you do, it's, it's fine. You know, I don't know if you have any, are you committed to any particular interpretation of, of, of the living creatures with a particular gospel writer? I'm, I'm not prepared to, to, to make any particular claim on which one goes with which. What what I read, I mean, just to, in terms of the re, the relating of those two, is that you, you've got these four living creatures who, you know, they're facing different ways, but they're all like united in, in what they do. And, and in the same way, you have the four gospels that, you know, each one gives you maybe a different glimpse into some aspect of Jesus' ministry, but they're all united in what they're saying and confessing about him. So, uh, I, I thought I found that helpful regardless of which face goes with which writer. 
And they also are not doing their own thing, are they? Right. They are moving with the spirit. Okay. So they're, yeah, it's not like Matthew is like, well, this is a cool story I want to tell. This is something that the Holy Spirit has actually inspired and, and given us. So, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, right. They're not doing different things. They may be looking in different directions, but yet seeing everything all at the same time. But they are moving and they are touching one another. Uh, they're with one another. So, yeah, they're really fantastic. I, if, if people haven't seen these these icons, they're they're very cool. Um, the one on my office, I I, I painted it myself, and uh, I'm not done with it because I have yet to paint Jesus' face on it, mm. which is like the scariest thing in the world. So, mm. anyways, um, yeah, it is. And again, but you know the cool thing is that like. That's not even a given. That's not necessarily what this has to mean. But this is how the church has interpreted this from from very early on. Mm. And I think it works really well because the Gospels do actually carry um, Christ to us through the Holy Spirit. Certainly. I mean, it's it's a fitting, it, it fits very well with what Ezekiel sees and, and the truth of the Holy Scriptures and the Gospel writers. One of the other features that stands out, again, trying to take this in, in totality is, if I can say it like this, there are a lot of things that are on fire in this text. A lot of things that are brightly flashing or burning or that gleaming metal, as you were talking about earlier. A lot of that reminds me of, of what happens on Mount Sinai when the Lord comes down on Mount Sinai. There's a lot of, of burning and flashing there as well. Any thoughts yes. on, on what happens with, with that in terms of Ezekiel? Oh, man. I mean, it's <laughs> also like, it's like they're juggling flaming torches at some point in this. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it is a very um, uh, pyrographic uh, vision here, isn't it? Well, and so I think about, now think about the first time that we hear about a cherubim, and I believe this is also the first time that we see fire, Okay. Uh, this is the Garden of Eden. Mm. When the cherubim is placed at the, the gate of the Garden of Eden to guard it, he has a flaming sword which flashes every which way. So when when Ezekiel sees this thing kind of coming out of the clouds, uh, and he seems to know that this is a cherubim with with fire. I mean, the, again, the question is, is like, uh oh. Uh, is this is this good news or what is this? Is the fire for me? Um, so, and we think about where else the Lord comes in fire. So, uh, he also comes to Moses in the burning bush uh, in fire, right? And we remember this wonderful story of uh, Mount Carmel, where uh, the prophets of Baal are there, and uh, we're going to see who the true God is, and. Uh, Elijah calls down fire from heaven and the Lord answers and burns up all of the sacrifices and licks up all of the water and the trenches. So yeah, this is as Hebrews 12 says, our God is a consuming fire. Um, and, and Peter talks about this with um, the return of Christ too. How um, we know that the world will not be destroyed by water again. Uh, but certainly by fire. But this fire also is 
a purifying fire, right? It is not meant for your destruction, but for your purification. So yeah, like our God is a consuming fire, and this is how He is revealed here, uh, with with the flaming cherubim. In addition, another one of the features of this vision is the the mobility of these cherubim, and and the wheels are connected to that as well. That these these creatures they can move and do move any which way without turning either. Well, what's what's going on with all this movement to and fro, flash? I mean, it's certainly connected to the idea of lightning. I think you know that boom, boom, boom here and here and here to and fro everywhere. What's going on with the movement in this text? It seems almost frantic, doesn't it? Um, and it is kind of how Jesus describes the spirit. You see the wind blow, but you don't really know. But um, yeah, the the wheels, honestly, the wheels to me seem like an easier thing to understand than the four living creatures. Uh, they're going everywhere. So prior to this, uh, people had kind of regional deities. You would worship the god of this or that place, and the reason why you weren't supposed to marry outsiders is that, well, you were going to end up worshiping their local gods. So this is, it's kind of establishing Yahweh as a non-regional deity. Hmm. It is telling the world, oh, this god is actually lord of the whole universe, which was not something claimed by all the other gods. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, He's going everywhere, and he goes with you. And when I think about chariots in the scriptures, too, all these wheels, um, I, I think about Pharaoh and his army mm. going through in pursuit of Israel in the Red Sea. And there's that description of their, they couldn't move anymore because their chariot wheels got stuck in the mud. So you contrast that with these, these babies. I mean, this is impressive. They are going everywhere. They are full of eyes. And they. this is the Lord's chariot. And he really is. He's, he's so far away from not getting stuck in the mud. You know, it's not like he can just get through the Red Sea. He's everywhere. Mm. Uh, and, and so he's not just everywhere, like, keeping an eye on you. It's that he actually does go with you. And, and I think that's... That is an important thing to see, especially, you know, in the Exodus, is that the Lord goes with them. Or rather, they go with the Lord. So they are in exile, uh, but yet the Lord has not abandoned them. I mean, he just will not leave them as orphans, even though they have left him so many times. Uh, They're in exile because of their own sin. They didn't really want to have anything to do with this this lord they were fine with the uh kind of subpar regional gods the idols that they could make you know like hey golden calf they're sitting there before the mountain on fire and they're like yeah let's make a golden calf instead i mean come on but yet again he does not abandon them he just won't do it he does things that seem strange to us um perhaps some people would say evil, but uh, the Lord, yeah, he just will not leave them behind. And he is the Lord of all things, not just the Israelites, but of all people, the, the uh, Israel and the nations. This, this, you know, this preaching here of God's presence with and among his people 
even in exile. Is is that going to is that going to come to them as a preaching of judgment or a preaching of comfort? Do you, or is there a bit of both involved as we'll see the the book of Ezekiel go on? Well, I tell you what, um, there does seem to be communication between the people in exile and the people remaining behind. So while Ezekiel is preaching to the people in exile, he is also somehow sending this stuff back to the people in, in Jerusalem. So what are they going to hear that as? Um, for the people in exile, it's like, awesome. Um, but for the people still there, they're probably reading it a different way. Um, you know, I mean, it's kind of like how we talk about persecution, right? Yeah, you is persecution good news or bad news that, that the Lord actually does well and as Tertullian says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, I mean, has has someone you know been persecuted and slain? Um, or are you waiting for that to happen? It's yeah, I mean it's gonna hit people in different different ways, of course. But I mean, it is such a redefining of where they could think of where um, Yahweh was dwelling. Now, too, it's also not that God was actually confined by a building. Um, Like, his omnipresence, like, hey, he's always had all the eyes on all the wheels being able to go everywhere with the Spirit. Um, But he establishes the temple for the good of the people so that they know where they can find him. Because... You know, we need tactile things. And the Lord actually does um, establish himself in certain physical ways and places, such as in holy baptism, in the Word, and in the Holy Eucharist. So if you want to find him, is he everywhere? Well, of course he is. Uh, But how do you find him? Well, he's given us these places uh, to find him. So, yeah, this... I mean, I think this is great news because mm-hmm. if we if we get kicked out of Jerusalem or if we lose our tax-exempt status and the government closes all of our church buildings and takes our Bibles and whatever, like, this is, you cannot truly exile the people of God. Mm-hmm. Like, we are at home in the Lord and the Lord goes with us. He won't leave us. I think that that the point you were making about how the Lord does locate himself in specific places for our good is is really important because certainly what what we see in Ezekiel 1 that the Lord is present everywhere that he is no regional deity but he is the God over all creation. I think we as Christians know that that, that he is present everywhere. It's I think it's easy for Christians to confess that but the question can become well is he present here? for my good, for my salvation, or is he present here for my judgment? And I think that's where certainly as, as the word of Ezekiel might've found its way back to the people still in Jerusalem and even to the people who are still struggling with, you know, the false prophets who are there in Babylon. We know Jeremiah sent a letter to Babylon to, to Babylon warning the exiles about the false prophets who are there as well. That this, this question of, okay, the Lord hasn't left us in exile, but is he present for our good here, or is he present here to judge us further, is a question that Ezekiel is probably going to have to deal with. And I think that's where you know, the, the locatedness, if that's a word, the, the locatedness of God 
is such an important thing. And, and that's where, and again, this is many chapters down the road, but the end of Ezekiel concludes with this vision of a new temple that, that the Lord does promise to be present in places, specific places where we know when we look for him there, he's going to be there for our good. And, and that's where the incarnation is so important that the word becomes flesh for us. And he still makes himself present, as you said, in word and sacrament. So I think, I mean, that, that's such an important conversation here in Ezekiel 1, really for the whole book, that, that certainly is, is involved in this book. I, I bet we could probably finish the hour on that conversation, but I want to pick up a few more things, Pastor Meetzner. Let's, let's talk about this text starts to move us up. And so we, we have the four living creatures and the wheels with all these eyes moving around. And then in verse 22, over the heads, there's the likeness of an expanse. And, and then the text starts to transition into some sounds and then moves us further up to the throne that's that's above. So we've got about 10 minutes to, to kind of talk about some of the these images that's ultimately, I think, moving us toward finally Ezekiel hearing the word of the Lord that's going to happen in chapter 2. Fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, you think about this. Okay, if you, if you go to Europe and tour these, like, wonderful cathedrals, um, you will see amazing things, and you'll be in awe of all of it. But at the end of the day, you actually need someone to come to you and to preach to you. So you can see all these things, but you do need a preacher. You need someone to proclaim the gospel to you. Um, <clears throat> so, and that's, I think that's kind of what's going on here, too, because he does not leave him confused at the very end of this. He does actually talk to him. Um, yeah, so and interesting there, verse 22, um, is shining like awe-inspiring crystal. Um, the word there is actually kind of like frost. And, um, and I think about this, I don't know if you remember this in Exodus, um, I think it's Exodus 22 or thereabouts, but uh, Exodus 24, Moses and the elders go up and they eat and drink with God, and they see they see his feet on a, a pavement, a sapphire stone. And it's kind of like this. Like, we get these depictions of, of heaven here uh, and the place where God dwells. And by the way, he's also bringing heaven down to earth here, isn't he? Mm, yeah. uh, which is what happens in the incarnation, which is what happens in in the sacraments, which is what happens when the word of God is is read among us it is almost like looking at a beautiful bible and then reading a beautiful bible um, so there's this wonderful thing so we've got these cherubim they sound like an army and it is very similar to what isaiah sees in the temple although he sees seraphim which by the way are the only place where seraphim are uh, mentioned Cherubim get the uh, they get the major billing in, in the Bible uh, for angels, but when when John talks about them in the Book of Revelation, he talks about them the cherubim singing, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come," which is the same thing that the seraphim are singing in the temple in Isaiah, "Holy, holy, holy." And so, you know, every every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we sing this thing, the Sanctus, holy, 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 
And what we're confessing there is that we are there, we're there with Ezekiel on the banks of the Kibar Canal. And we're there with Isaiah in the temple. We're there in the Revelation with John, uh, with the angels and the archangels. And we are actually being brought into this thing. Heaven is coming down to earth here in the Lord's Supper with the very body and blood of Christ. Who, I mean, okay, you know, it doesn't say this is Jesus here at the end, does it? But um, in verse 28, we see that there is a rainbow around this human appearance. So, I mean... This is sort of a horrifying, like, it sounds almost like some, like, magical biker rally or something to this point. And and you don't know if these things are, like, surrounding you in order to get you or what. Is this for my good or is this for my bad? Which, by the way, guess what? God's judgment is always good. If he's judging you to take away your idols, then, like, idol worship isn't good. The Lord's going to take them away, anyways. But um, it's, I think it's such an important thing at the very end of this, like the appearance of the bone that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So is the appearance of the brightness all around. And people are supposed to know what this means. That the rainbow is given after destruction to Noah, and it is given to show that the Lord has turned his battle bow away from us. He is not here for our destruction. He is here for our good. He loves us. And we see this in the Revelation, too. Jesus is there seated upon the rainbow. You know, and it's unfortunate that it's been, like, co-opted by, you know, everyone else in the world. But it is such a joyful symbol. And, um, yeah, like, he's there for your good. This Lord has come to you your good so the living creatures and the wheels um and all of this stuff they are supporting they're caring about the lord and i think anytime you see something like this the human appearance of the lord in the old testament you can think um jesus so he's there he's there for you Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, the the human appearance that points to the the reality of Jesus. The fact that in verse 28, you know, Ezekiel recognizes that this is the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That term, the glory of the Lord, it, you know, it reminds me of the way John writes in his gospel and the way Jesus speaks about his glory and what that means. You know, his his glory. His glory. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, I mean, I think yeah. Keep, I mean, dig on, dig in that a little bit more. We've got about about four minutes here on the morning to kind of wrap this up, and and especially with all this crazy imagery, help us to see this text as pointing us to the reality of our our Savior, God, who is here for our good, Christ Jesus. Um, well, <laughs> this is kind of funny. Like, I love the Church Fathers so much. Like they they think about things in a way that I don't. And they were a lot closer to these things than I, I am or ever will be. Uh, but there's like this weird thing they do where they can find the Virgin Mary in everything. And to, like, I don't think you went here either. But in verse 26, uh, Gregory Thaumaturgus in the third century says, well, this is clearly the Virgin Mary. Um, you know what? I'm not seeing it. 
<laughs> I'm not seeing it. Isn't that a weird thing? Um, but it's who is the one who is seated upon the throne? He is seated upon the throne, and he has the power for judgment over the living and the dead. And we confess this, and and that's what Jesus is coming back to do. Um, but he does come with the rainbow. He has come to judge you to be his holy and righteous people. Whether you're in exile by the Kibar Canal, whether you are the member of some like thriving church in a nice place, or whether you're like in some weird little church in the middle of nowhere that can't keep it together, uh, the Lord is here for you. And we're talking about how, of course, God is everywhere. But um, uh, Dr. Norman Nagel has this, you know, said, well, of course the Lord is everywhere, but where is he for you? And that's where, he, that's where this comes down to it. Where is he for you? And uh, you, you do run. And it's also worth noting that people shouldn't be seeking out visions like this, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> but you do run to where he has told you he's going to be in the word, in the sacraments, in, in the church. And yeah, he won't abandon you. Ezekiel, he's, he's supposed to be in the temple, offering the sacrifices and doing all the crazy stuff that they're supposed to do in there. It looks crazy to us, but, but there he is, and he's in exile, and the Lord comes to him. Now, things are going to be kind of... Um, once he starts speaking, Ezekiel's commission, he will have to remember that the Lord is for him, not against him. And he will have to remember that the Lord is not punishing him um, for no reason at all. Uh, but, but he does love him, and he does love the whole entire um, house of Israel. Uh, he loves all of them. They are his people. And he's not going to leave them. And he's not going to leave you. Um, this is Jesus Christ died uh, and raised from the dead for you. And, and it's so awful to think about the, the cross and kind of the chaos of, of Holy Week. Almost like this, you know. But there, uh, at the end of it, is an empty tomb. And you know, perhaps a rainbow, uh, but there he is. His his bow is pointed away from us, um, and instead he comes to us and he fights for us. And so that's that's what we're going to see in the rest of this book. Um, it's I mean it's a long book, but he is for you. So remember that rainbow when you see it. God be praised. Pastor Kyle Meetsner is the pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Anchorage, Alaska, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 to 28. Pastor Meetsner, thanks for being our guest today. You're welcome. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel, comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second me- message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.